It's harder than you think. So unless your uncle gave you a million dollars to get started or 10 million or somebody else did, it's a lot harder than you think. And you're going to want to give up a lot. And it's going to affect your family. It's going to affect your marriage. It's going to affect your kids. Um, it's going to affect your health. You're going to get fat. You, you know, you're going to gain, you're going to go on binges where you just don't exercise and you work 16, 17 hours a day sometimes. So it's a lot harder than you think. This is not easy. Here's, it's funny. I, I, I was watching, I love TikTok now because I just get those one minutes from these really great people like Peterson and others. I get these little anecdotes and oh boy, the, the things that they say about, I'm missing it right now, but it'll come back to me. But it's, it's really, it's really that it is harder than you think. And you do want to give up, but you keep, you got to, you just got to keep pressing through. Welcome to MedSider Radio, where you can learn from proven medtech and healthcare thought leaders through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey everyone, it's Scott. In this episode of MedSider, I sat down with Mark Carbone, who is the CEO of PN Medical, makers of medical devices that help improve pulmonary performance of patients, vocal artists, and professional athletes. Mark used his technology background and entrepreneurial experience to turn PN Medical into a front runner in the pulmonary space. Here are a few of the key learnings that we discussed in this conversation. First, finding champions is crucial people who can truly move the needle for your business. Look for individuals who not only have domain expertise, but are driven to leave legacy. Second, protect your products at all costs. You need to partner with the right IP counsel, allocate enough legal budget, and secure as many trademarks and patents as possible. Third, identify distributors that not only can execute, but are trustworthy as well. Ensure they have an actual sales force on the ground that can deliver real results for your brand. Before we jump into this episode, I wanted to let you know that we recently released the second volume of MedSider Mentors, which summarizes the key learnings from the most popular MedSider interviews over the last six months or so. Look, it's tough to listen or read every single MedSider interview that comes out, even the best ones, but there are so many valuable lessons you can glean from the founders and CEOs that join our program. So that's why we decided to create MedSider Mentors. It's the easiest way for you to learn from the world's best medical device and health technology entrepreneurs in one central place. If you're interested in learning more, head over to medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. Premium members get free access to all past and future volumes. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. In addition to every volume of Medsider Mentors, you'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Erica Rogers, CEO of Silk Road Medical, Dr. David Albert, founder of AliveCore, and so many others. In addition, as a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medtech and health tech entrepreneurs. Learn more by visiting medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. Again, that's medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. Mark, welcome to Medsider. Appreciate you coming on. Hey, thank you very much. All right, really looking forward to the conversation. It's going to be a, a little bit of a of a different twist, and as we kind of discussed in the pre-interview here, you know, I, I'm having a lot of fun bringing on you know founders and CEOs of uh, kind of traditional medical device companies that are now commercializing you know direct to consumer, and so I think this will be a fun conversation. So, with that said. I provided uh, a little bit about a, a, you know, a short bio um, of, of yourself kind of at the, at the outset of this episode, but um, let's start there. If you can provide um, kind of an elevator pitch for your professional background leading up to your, your CEO role at, uh, at P&Medical, um, that would be really helpful. We can start there. Sure. 
I think it all started off as I am someone who has made so many mistakes along the way. It's amazing that I'm as successful as I am now. Um, it's so looking back, it's it's like you can make mistakes. It's okay, just get up and keep going. So I was an entrepreneur since about 13, you know, cutting grass, buying and selling cars, painting houses. So started early, come from an entrepreneurial family. College went to pre did pre-law, got my MBA. I now use about two percent of my MBA. <laughs> so if I had it to do over again, I would not do it. And then my first substantial venture was a software company. I started in 2000. I sold that in 2007. I invented an enterprise solution. It was like, you know, competed with Oracle, PeopleSoft, and Microsoft Dynamics, but at a much smaller level. So, but what I did after that, um, of course, that was the great recession that we're now entering another one uh, similar, hopefully not. I made a big, I, I, I made a big move, but ye- years after that, actually, and I took a break from entrepreneurship for 18 months. And then I worked for one of the most successful presidents in corporate America, Todd Jones of Publix. It's a, it's a regional grocery chain, but hmm. one of the most successful Fortune 100s in America, actually. And and he taught me so much, and it was great to take that to take that little break. Um, I also had a marketing agency for years, and then fast forward a little bit to 2015. That's when I took over PN Medical. It was a really small niche mom and pop company, and I've since taken it from half a million to now 20 in this year in 2023 we should be around 20 million so it's gone it's been a great it's been a great venture and a lot has been learned over those years yeah that's great great background i, I love kind of your your eclectic sort of uh re- resume you know uh and I, which i'm sure um you know all of those various experiences are kind of uh yielding a lot of fruit in terms of what you're doing at, at pn medical so can you give us a, a sense kind of like a like Let's not without going like too far into the weeds. Give us a sense for like what 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 your devices are and kind of what what pain points they solve. Sure. Well, first off, the field I'm in is cardiopulmonary medical devices, and the quickest way to describe this is you know you can think of it two different groups. So I'll just show you the first. This is like our flagship device. This is the packaging, and just quick on packaging. We've learned a lot of lessons over the years. Make it small, easy to package so you can fit as many in a box when you're shipping. Mm. You know, message from the original founder. And when you open it up, message from me and then my personal email address. And believe me, I get emailed every single day. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. pretty rough. And then, um, so this is the flagship product. So this one, like I said, there are two types of people that we serve. This first type, this is the medical device. This is for people suffering from respiratory illness. So COPD, asthma, chronic heart failure, things like that. And now COVID. So this is big. We're really big in COVID recovery, actually. It's pretty exciting. And the second type. So this is more for your audience, for your listeners. This one's for high achievers and pro athletes, Olympians. It's it's a lot stronger. It's for people who are fit, who are just alphas. And, mm. and what they're doing is they're trying to improve their human performance physically and mentally. So this is this is it. It's called Breather Fit. Hmm. And it's very similar. It's just a lot stronger. And then how you use it, it what it does is it it's training and building up all the respiratory muscles, everything that has to do with breathing. So and even the larynx. So it it affects speech, swallow all the way that, down to the lungs. Real simple, real quick demo. You adjust the dials, inhale and exhale, different pressure settings. 
and you start low, of course you go up and there's an app that goes with it. You follow the app, it coaches you. It's like a virtual coach. And I'll just do a couple breaths. And you do two sets in the morning, two sets at night, typically. And it's just five minutes morning, five minutes at night. And it, and the results are pretty outstanding. I mean, go to our website. There's a lot of statistics from the pro athlete side, you know, special forces. So for army Rangers, they can increase their run time. It's the rucksack time when they're carrying that big pack on the back yeah. by 39 seconds, they can improve their two mile run. Um, wow. Speakers, professional speakers. It actually helps with anxiety too. So as soon as you start using it, you start calming down. Do you have, so it's got a, do you have a lot of, a lot of, um, and, and we'll circle back around. I think for for everyone listening, you know, I we're, we're Mark and I are having this conversation on Zoom, so I can see the I can see the devices. But if you're just listening to this, head on over to PN Medical, PN like so Paul uh, Nelson Medical, PN Medical dot com, and uh, and you can get a sense for what these devices um, look like and and how how they work. But a quick question on the on the on the breather fit device, the con- more the consumer kind of like you know device that's meant for for you know health and wellness and athletic performance. Do you get a lot of people that comment on uh, sleep enhancement that use it at night as well? Wow. Good question. Actually, we've done sleep studies with it. So oh, really? that's okay. what's great about it. We, we're, we do the most novel research in our industry, actually, all the way from NATO fighter pilots and astronauts, all the way down to COPD and, and chronic heart failure. So sleep apnea, I've got it. So what it is, is I'm a user because I've got some of these issues. I've actually, I'm a three-time COVID survivor. So I have long COVID. So I suffer from some of the symptoms of long COVID too. So sleep is big. And what it does, it's key. People don't realize this. The new big number is your HRV, your variable heart rate. So that is a predictor of longevity and your lung capacity. After 30, our lungs actually start, we start losing capacity and you can reverse that. Our device actually helps reverse that. So HRV is a key number that athletes and everybody across the world has to monitor. So HRV goes up overnight. Like I use Aura. We we partner with all the wearables. Um, We've done studies with a number of the wearables. I like the Aura because you just put it on and forget it. And it does really good sleep track. Oh, you got one too. Yeah, yeah, we got one too. (laughs) Yeah. So um, big time for sleep, for snoring as well, because what it's doing is it's strengthening those muscles around the laryngeal area. So it is really good for sleep. Yeah, that's super interesting. So I guess just to sum it up, you've got you've got two basically two devices. One that's meant for more like consumer health and wellness and athletic performance and recovery, and the other one's a little bit more positioned as a kind of a more medical medical device. With the with the the latter one, the, the more the the one that's that's positioned as kind of a for for uh, you know clinical use or medical purposes. Do you commercialize that as well directly to consumers, or do you kind of work through more traditional clinician channels? Well, it started uh, a dis- distributor channel. That's we did okay. all distribution at first, way back before I started when I took over. And there was some hospital, nursing home, um, assisted living, and then outpatient rehab. So we're we're in all those spaces. And now, over the last four years, is when we've started commercializing, and we've we have brought it online. So it's okay. class one. We have a class two version too, over the counter. So both of those actually can sell on Amazon and the other on the other consumer channels. So it's it's worked in both areas. Yes. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. And then you touched on this briefly. Give us a set before we get into some of these, you know, kind of the, the key lessons learned, you know, that you've learned throughout your career as it pertains to kind of uh growing PN medical. But um 
give us a sense kind of for where the company's at in terms of, you know, you, regulatory, uh, commercialization, et cetera. Are you, you, you mentioned you've got class one and class two devices, right? And then you're actively, you, you've been actively commercializing both for quite some time. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and people need to know it's, it is not hard to get class one uh, approved or registered. Mm-hmm. That's, and it is such a bonus because that's, it always, when you're ever trying to go into a new hospital or, or any medical space, they, it comes up, somebody's going to mm-hmm. ask it in one of the meetings when you're trying to close a deal, uh, is it FDA registered? So class one is not hard to get if, if some of your audience have never approached that. It's not scary. Class two is very hard. Yep. You have to get five, 10 Ks. It's a, it's a long process. You have to find good consultants. I found my consultants that we hired years ago that we've been keeping and they're at a really good rate. We found them through we started looking through LinkedIn, but actually Upwork is where I found a couple really uh, good ones. Yeah. And we've kept them for years. So yeah, that, that's, a, that's doing... a channel. Yeah. I mean, that, that just on that note, that's a um, I mean, that 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 network or that marketplace has been has been around for quite some time. But there's a lot of really talented people on on Upwork, right? I mean, I think um if, oh, yeah. if, if you may be familiar with it and think it's just, you know, it's just a kind of a, a gimmicky kind of Fiverr type of marketplace, but it's not. I mean, there's a lot of like really, really good skilled professionals that, you know, that that freelance and are available. We know, have hired Upwork. in the eight years I've been here, my first hire was my chief scientist who's still with me off of Upwork. Huh. And I landed her in Austria. She's in Austria. We just, I just, I found her and she's been with me ever since. And she's a secret weapon uh, <laughs> actually. And half of our team comes from Upwork. Wow. So I use Indeed. Friends, you know, you do friends and family, indeed, and then upwork. So that's how we've always and HR is my biggest issue. It's my biggest, it's the biggest investment. It's the most important thing you can do as a CEO, I think, is team. Mm-hmm. And it's almost my it's pretty much half of my job is just trying to find great people right. who are just really good at what they do and they're smarter than me in the things that they're really good at. Yeah, one of the on the on the on this uh, kind of on this topic, you know, one of the things that I'm I'm a big fan of, especially for early stage companies or or early stage projects, right? I mean, it could be within an existing kind of larger company, but if you're trying to find you know talent for a certain function, um, the nice thing about using um, or kind of leveraging sort of the gig economy, right? Whether it's through Upwork or any other marketplace, is that it allows you to kind of get your feet wet, right? Get to know each other, you know, experiment a little bit on on a project. And, you know, without going all in on a full-time hire, as an example, right, that could end up maybe not not a, a good fit, you know, for both parties. And so I really kind of love leveraging sort of fractional, like, work like that, because, it, I mean, it, it really does, it really does allow you to kind of experiment and, you know, determine whether or not it's a, it's a, it's a good fit uh, for, for both, you know, both the company um, as well as the, as well as the, the freelancer. So interesting that you, that you brought that up. But on that note, Mark, you, you've got kind of an interesting formula, right, when you're taking on you know, a new, you know, a, you know, in terms of product development and you've got, you, you've referenced, I think, in kind of leading up to this conversation, a formula for how do you balance both research and, and product development? Can you kind of frame that up and, and maybe, maybe put yourselves in the shoes of, you know, another med tech or health tech entrepreneur that's, that's listening to this conversation and talk to us a little bit more about that, that equation and how you, how you look at it. Yeah, that's true. When I, when I took over the company again, it was really small, but at least it had some revenue. It had a little bit of profit. So I was, you know, maybe I had a little edge. Other people have money. I had an edge that I bought a very small company that had a good reputation. Uh, so there was a little bit of runway for mm-hmm. me to spend a few thousand a month. So the balance 
that balance with product development and research matters because as I was going to sell, they're like, well, where's your research? I would always get hit with, oh, where's your research? And the the previous owner actually did do some research, but never published it. So I, I started getting that old research published. And then what we did, how I did the research is that, I don't know if I was a good salesman, but I would go and pitch institutions and say, you know, we've got something great. I'll give you the product for free. You know, the the actual product cost of our products, not a lot. It's not like a thousand dollar device I'm having to give away for free. We do have a connected device too, but I would give away product in time and help. And we actually got some studies. So I have most of our studies, we have only had to fund what we do. We do not have to pay for the IRB because, you know, an IRB, and we've done them with Mayo Clinic. We've done with the biggest hospitals in the world. The starting price is usually a half a million dollars just to talk. Mm-hmm. And I've and how it's worked is I, mean, I can't give full detail, but it's been a great relationship where I don't have to put so much upfront into that. So mm-hmm. the balance is, gosh, you got to get tiny little wins, and you really leverage and publish and push and promote those tiny little ten patient studies or twenty patient studies. And then once you work your way up to doing an IRB, well, then you get there and and you get to that spot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that you bring this up because I I was uh, rereading um, an interview that I uh, I had with um, Jim Biggins, who runs, he's the CEO of, uh, of a- founder and CEO of Access Vascular, right? And, and that's not a consumer product per se, but he mentioned something that um, as they kind of approached research, right? Um, clinical research. They, you know, the, the, the natural kind of, um, you know, path forward is to do like, you know, a big, large RCT, right? Um, but those are, as you mentioned, you know, super, super expensive, right? Um, and and it, a huge, a huge commitment. And instead, they, um, you know, they, they did smaller, you know, uh, single center types of studies, right, that allowed for quick turns uh, when it comes to IRB approval. And, you know, uh, sites that were a little bit more enthused and excited about doing the study. So, you know, you, you typically can, can, can get through those a lot, a lot quicker and, you know, they're, they're a little bit more bought into publishing the data, et cetera. So there's a lot of advantages in like, you know, starting small, right. And doing, you know, kind of picking well, off you these hit, smaller, you, these smaller, studies. you hit the key. This is what I did is I always found a really excited champion, mm-hmm. somebody who had a little budget in their department, but they were, they just, they're just into tech, they're into new stuff and they want to, they want to move up the ladder at their organization and they'll do anything to get a study and get published. So find you you find they're they're everywhere. People are really bored in their jobs <laughs> and they want to do something new. They want to they want to leave a legacy, right? Yeah. So so I always approach it that this is legacy building and it ends up being a win-win across the board. We end up becoming great friends. So all the studies we've done, I now have friends everywhere from these studies and we we just pat each other on the back and and just feels good that we actually moved healthcare forward. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I'm, I'm, uh, I advise a, another uh, direct and consumer med tech uh, company. They, they've, uh, they've developed a class two device, but it's OTC uh, doing exceptionally well. And, um, you know, they, they've seen the same thing, right? The more they commercialize, they actually get inbound requests from really actually top tier institutions, right? That are excited. And, you know, they're people that are, you know, working on some small project inside, you know, a large organization. And this is kind of, this is their thing, right? You know, this is what gets them excited. And, you know, they're oftentimes willing to do, you know, small research projects 
that really don't cost the company much, right? Um, at, at all, you know, other than maybe you know the the provision of of, of uh, the actual devices to use as part of the study. So, well, um, one other thing though, when people are doing this, this is really important because I've had this happen. You need to leave quickly if they're wasting. I don't want to say hmm. they're wasting your time, but you may got a person that's super ambitious, but they do not have the power to influence hmm. all the other decision makers, and you need to walk away and not. Because sometimes I've stuck around for a year meeting with people and and you got to know that just move on. There's somebody else that really wants to work with you and just find that person. Hmm, that's good. That's good. Good stuff. Let's transition a little bit uh, to your experiences uh, when it comes to uh, the regulatory uh, function, right? And that which can be kind of uh, kind of dynamic, right? Especially if you're commercializing through, through Amazon. So talk to us a little bit about your how you've kind of balanced, um, you know, very, you know, working with various, you know, agencies like FDA and, and also Amazon, you know, with uh, with you know more devices that that do kind of fall under that that med tech umbrella. Sure, it it goes back to whoever is your champion on your side, your FDA consultant, or if you can afford it, that you have somebody in house. They just have to have a track record that they know these people. Or you actually, another powerful way to go is through law firms. So one of our law firms is Hauling and Knight, which is one of the biggest in America. And their, you know, their division that deals with this, well, they just can walk, they're in DC, so they can just walk across the street over to the FDA. It's not like they do that, but they'll just go out for coffee with someone. So you really have to get somebody who knows somebody there for not so much for approvals, but for coaching. So that when you do go through the approval process, you don't get all the denials. It's another three months. It's another six months where you have to answer 46 more questions that you did not answer or they want clarity on. It's the more you do your homework up front and you don't try to make too many claims, it usually pushes you through faster. And it feels like the FDA was getting, they have been trying to be a little faster about it. Like they're being more forgiving on software. I've noticed that's getting easier. And then the new thing we're dealing with now that we're g- growing globally is ISO, which FDA was four years ago supposed to switch to ISO, and I don't know what the status is right now. Um, but we're now having to get we're we're getting ISO certified as well because the EU, you know, they they require that of us. Um, so it's there's it's it's really I don't know how to say it. It's it's a lot of homework up front. You really need people on your team who have done it five or six or 10 or 20 times. And and you must, you just got to really interview them pretty hard that they truly have done it and they have to prove they have. Yeah, that that domain expertise is is so important, and ideally, it's 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 not only domain expertise in a certain function like regulatory, obviously, but ideally, it's domain expertise in that that sort of therapeutic arena too, right? And even even better if they understand kind of the nature in which your 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 business model kind of operates in, right? Like if it's an OTC, they've got experience, you know, with regulated OTC devices. So yeah, uh, I, I echo that the same sentiment. I want to circle back around here in a little bit and talk about your experiences commercializing across Amazon, right? But before we go there, let's chat a little bit about partnering with investors, right? Because you have, you have a fair amount of experience there. So uh, with with fundraising, so if you had to kind of sum up your your advice or your counsel right for other medtech health tech entrepreneurs that are you know raising let, let's not think about like series c or series d rounds but like early stage capital right friends and yeah. family angels maybe series a you know what what kind of like one or two pieces of advice would you kind of offer up that have been you know 
either uh, that you've either done really well or maybe 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 uh, failed and kind of le- have learned from over the years. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I've we've done two rounds, so we did Angel, and then uh, the second was was a real estate mogul, hmm. and I'll go into that one. That one you. So I'll just tell you, you don't get an investor who knows nothing about medicine. So, and, but he had a lot of money, but um, I'll tell you. So part one, when I first started, you know, I came to the table with a connected device. So we 3d printed it. I was at Advent health in their innovation lab. They did all the 3d printing. We made really cool connected devices and I raised some money on that. I raised the first bit of money because it was shiny. It was, it was the shiny, cool product that could predict an exacerbation 14 days before the patient knew they were having it. So it was pretty, pretty cool. I mean, I've still got it. We're probably going to go live with it in 2024, but a lot of lessons learned with that device. So anyway, with investors, first thing, I actually thought I was going to land a really big investor and we were, we had done our meetings, gone back and forth, gone out to dinner. And one of the last questions he asked at a session, he said, what's your 3% rule or what's, what are you going to do at the 3% time? And I said, what's that? And he actually pretty much ended it five minutes later because I didn't know what that meant. So he told me afterwards, though, after he said no, um, he said, what are you going to do when you hit two to 3% of market share? And you have to have an answer because if you really are making these predictions, oh, we're going to be worth this, we're going to be 100 million. Well, that means you're probably going to be at the five, 10% market share rate. So when I hit three or when I actually hit 5% market share, a few years ago, well, it was it was a disaster. I had to hire law firms. We had to go into lawsuits because what happened is it opened the door. The world saw us, and it was COVID because we are. What's happened is we are a solution for COVID. So, twenty knockoffs, five counterfeits later, and multiple lawsuits. Um, Amazon was kind. They even did an international lawsuit on our behalf, uh, which which has been amazing because there's no way we could have afforded such an expensive lawsuit. So when you, what you have to prepare for is what is your plan when you actually have that much market share, you're either going to be bought. You're either going to, what they typically do is the big guys destroy you first and then buy you. So they lower their prices to hurt you. And then they come back when you're down and then they buy you at, at half of what they were first going to offer. So it's really tricky but then with investors, so the first investor was actually a group of guys that's now a real fund. It's uh, Florida funders out of Tampa, Florida, and they they did the angel round. They're still there. They're amazing guys. They're such such a nice team. The second was a real estate mogul, and I'm now almost done buying him out. So it was it was not a good. It wasn't healthy. You do not take money just because they're giving it. It could be the end of your company because these guys are really smart, so smart. And they're and they're looking at you with your great ideas and and they're and they can they can eventually just take it from you. So uh, don't take any money that comes. What I learned the hard way is just get out and sell. And your next hire after yourself is salespeople. I mean that that's huge. Is go out there and pre-sell if you don't have a product yet. And I was good at that when I had the software company. I needed to spend a million dollars to get the software where it needed to be. I pre-sold two million dollars worth of software a year before I made it, before it was out. I I, I don't know how I, I I just put really good presentations together, and I pre-sold. I gave them all really deep discounts, and and they funded me until the product was out. So that's that's another way 
is you really got to try to self-fund. I know investor money sounds great, but looking back, you really the investor really has to have the same. They have to be equally yoked. You guys have mm-hmm. to have a similar belief plan. And if there is an exit strategy, they have to, it can't be like a two-year. It has to be a little bit longer. They have to give you some room. So that's my yeah, no, that, that those are really good thoughts, and I'm I, I'm glad you brought up um, that that phrase that you just used, equally equally yoked, because you know if you're you, you know if you've got um, something compelling, right, uh, a device or a product that you're excited about, and you you know you need to raise capital, right, it's going to be, you know, you're not a you know multi million millionaire multi million dollar multi millionaire or uh, or uh, um, you know have a significant net worth, and you you know you you want to raise ca- outside outside capital. And and you're hearing no no's all the time, right? Rejection after rejection. It's so it's so it's so I guess compelling, right? That when you get your first yes, just to take the money. But uh, you got to be careful, you know. Um, if it's an investor that does not have that's not committed, right, for more than you know more than two or three years, and doesn't you know sort of fundamentally sort of align with what you're trying to do with your device, um, and and offers really no no other sort of like domain expertise, it can be it can be challenging, you know. Not that it's impossible, but Man, it's it's you know think think twice <laughs> think twice probably you know if you're if you're in that scenario and tempted to take money from an investor that you're uh, you're not necessarily sure you should um, so um, great great feedback the other thing that I I thought you you uh, you brought up was interesting was this this concept of this three percent rule you know um, and I think that's really interesting because you're you're right I mean if if you're if you're making significant inroads and taking market share. Like the target on your back just gets bigger and bigger across across the uh, across the board, right? So not only from competitors that you're taking share from, but also from regulatory bodies too, right? They're gonna they're gonna you know start looking at what you're doing and claims you're making and how you're going about uh, your commercial process with a lot with a lot more granularity, you know. So I, th- I think you you brought that up and being able to kind of think through, okay, if we get to this next inflection point and we're starting to you know to to drive significant top line revenue. Well, that comes with some other, there's some other things at play too, right? And you got to be prepared. Hey there, it's Scott. And thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadeem Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.